This is the book called Svi, The Miraculous Story of Triumph Over the Holocaust by Ellen McQuaid. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Psalms 27, 10. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if thou be able to number, th number them. And he said to, unto him, So shall the, thy seed be. Genesis 15.5 Publishers note, Although names have been changed to ensure privacy requested, by some characters in the book, all people and events depicted throughout the completely factual in the true story. Completely factual in the true story of this extraordinary man. Introduction. Tzvi is the biography of a man who, like his nation Israel, defies explanation apart from God. His story in the early stages is reminiscent of the book of Esther in the Bible. God is not cons consciously represented, yet he is obviously present and at work. People and events touch Svi's life at strategic points in ways that cannot be coincidental. Over the torturous, torturous course he followed in his fight for survival, a clear pattern of divine provision emerges. Unlike many of the stories told today, his, this true life epic has a satisfying climax. How Svi survived the Holocaust, found his way to shores of Israel, and experienced a life-transforming encounter with the Mashiach is a story one can ill afford to pass by. It is a story of triumph, miracles, and hope, and dramatically reveals the lengths to which a loving God will go to bring one soul safely home. E. McHugh 1939-1945 Chapter 1. Now You Are a Man He stood at the window looking out for a long time. In the courtyard below, he could see small children playing games. The gate, through which his mother had left the orphanage, seemed disproportionately large against the dark, the gathering darkness. At ten years of age, Henrik Wichred found himself alone. He didn't know why, nor could this frail Jew lad begin to comprehend the maelstrom of carnage and outrage into which he and Europe were passing. The Poland of his carefree childhood was gone, and life would never be the same again. Prior to 1939, Warsaw had been a happy place for a young boy to grow up. Oh, oh! there had been guarded conversations among adults and occasional talk of war, but in the world of a small child such as this meant very little. The Germans came and introduced Henrik to the demented world of Adolf Hitler. After a while, an attendant came and led the boy down a long corridor to the room he would occupy with other parentless children. He slowly paced. He slowly placed the few belongings he had brought along into the drawer assigned to him. And then he walked to the cot as he was to sleep in, sleep on, and sat down. Thoughts of last frantic weeks rushed through his head in confusing patterns. A child's mind could not assimilate the great changes that were taking place, changes destined to menace the world and alter the face of Europe. For months, Hitler had been attempting to use political slight of hand to veil his true designs for Poland from the French and British. He hoped to lull them into incantation at least long enough to implement his program for armed annexation. annexation. 
On August 23rd, 1939, the German fur... The German... Fur announced that the fatherland had signed a non-aggression pact with Russia. A secret clause in this agreement between predators called for the partition of Poland. Part of the country would go to Russia, the other part to Germany. The Vistula, Nauru, and Sands rivers would be dividing line between the occupying forces. September's first days saw German panzer divisions streaming across the border, while Luftwaffe aircraft simultaneously devastated Polish cities from the skies. The Polish people were determined to resist the onslaught, but their efforts could not stay the German advance. By September 9th, the 4th Panzer Division was positioned on the outskirts of Warsaw and was preparing to enter the city. A counterattack by Polish forces forestalled the inevitable briefly, but the weight of German armor and continuous assaults by dive bombers eventually prevailed. On September 27th, Warsaw surrendered and effective resistance was crushed throughout the country. Poland became a slave state, bled jointly by Nazis and communists. Hitler's plan for Poland called for annexing a portion of the country outright and forging it into the Reich as part of a German proper. A second area, which included Warsaw, Krakow, and Lublin, was to be incorporated under German administration as the general government but it was Hitler's long-term rage program that told the story. In a move of calculated duplicity, it would stab the sword of aggression firmly in the back of his Russian allies, June 22, 1941, in an attempt to extend the Nazi utopia to Moscow and the Hitherlands beyond. The situation prevailed when 10-year-old Herrick Wentritt had entered his home in the suburbs of Warsaw some months earlier. Despite the concentrated bombing of the city, the area where the Wirtschafts lived bore no obvious marks of war. The tree-shaded street, now taking on the colors of fall, was deeply calm, deceptively calm. The serenity was broken only when the boy entered the kitchen and found both his parents in tears. What is wrong? Henrik asked. We have lost the war, his father replied. The Germans have come to Warsaw. Go sit in the other room. I must talk to your mother. He entered the adjacent room and sat down with his three older brothers and sister. The air seemed heavy as he listened to the husband, the hushed conversation that passed between the boys. Arthur, the eldest, was telling them about the things he had heard from some neighbors earlier in the day. Tanks by hundreds and soldiers, too many to count, had entered Warsaw. Many people have been, had been killed. Everywhere there was fear about what would happen next. They must prepare for the worst. Mendel and Ruth, Wurzer, were strong people. He was a quiet, reserved sort of man who was solemnly, solemn known to display his emotions. Today it was different. As he tried to explain the current situation to the children, he found it necessary to pause frequently in order to regain his composure. Life will be changed for us now, he said solemnly. You will no longer be free to come and go as you once did. From now on, stay close to home. If you should see German soldiers, get out of their way. We can only hope that they will soon be driven from our land. Until then, we must be strong. At that time, they could not begin to realize just how strong they would have to be. Poland and her people were entering a period of trauma that had solemn been equaled on this planet. Hitler would pursue with rabid dedication his carefully crafted scheme for enterization of Europe. Those who did not fit the mold were doomed. 
The Nazi program for the conquered Poles was directed and brutal. Thousands were summer, summer, summerly executed. Thousands more were sent to Germany to be used as slave labor. Others were driven from their lands in, annex, in the annexed territory and their property given to settlers being transported to the area from Germany. Displaced farmers and other undesirables throughout Poland were forcibly exiled into general government area, which was initially viewed by the Germans as a dumping ground for deportees. Consequently, the population of Warsaw swelled due to, the, due to the tide of refugees flooding to the city. Already crippled by the ravages of war, Warsaw was ill-prepared to face the challenges of resettling large numbers of people. Hard on the heels on the, of the soldiers came the dreaded breed of political pol police known as Einstegruppen. Their function was to serve as a strike force dedicated to hunting down and eliminating people suspected of being disloyal to the ideals of National Socialism. A reign of fear quickly spread across the country, producing a perpetual cloud of anxiety, suspicion, and terror that hung ominously over the people of Poland. The pursuit of life in Warsaw became a grim, became a grim business. Scowling, hemolyted conscripts of the Third Reich were, event, were everywhere, and it was soon evident that physical survival would become the primary occupation of the victims of the Nazi conquest. News of arrest and imprisonment became routine. Neighbors suddenly disappeared without notice or explanation. Then, as if the horrors were not enough, hunger descended like a plague. A situation that was bad for the average Polish citizen became insufferable for the members of the Jewish community. They were embarked a special, ob a special objects of Nazi enmity. Hitler's charted course for a final solution to the Jewish problem involved successive stages. First, Jews were to be isolated and vilified. Jewish citizens were required to wear identifying armbands. Their travel and activities were restricted to their properties and persons subjected to seizure at moment's whim. Synagogues were destroyed and thousands of executions carried out. Jews were not allowed to have as much food as their Polish neighbors. Shopkeepers were dragged from their stores and beaten in the streets. Windows were broken and anti-Jewish slogans plastered on the walls of buildings. Jewish girls and women became the objects of cruel and violent public humiliation. Consequently, they kept more and more to their homes. After several months of this type of calculated harassment, the Jewish people were forced to move into specifically constructed ghetto areas. Streets were cornered off and later walled, penning them up inside like animals. The first such ghetto was built in Lutz in May of 1940. Warsaw received her infamous counterpart in November of, this November of the same year. Ghettos often contained small industries where the inhabitants were expected to work as their contribution to the war effort, while being systematically starved to death. The final step in, of, on Hitler's road to a Jewish world involved the establishment of death camps and the destruction of ghettos. It was to be the terminal phase. Six annihilation centers dotted the area Poland occupied prior to the war. Ashkowitz, Belzec, Treblinka, and other camps received what seemed to be an endless stream of wasted Jews who were hushed off the boxcars into which they had been shoved, prodded and herded worse than cattle, then hurried through the gates for processing. 
By the middle of 1942 at Treblinka alone, more than 300,000 Jewish people had made one the one-way trip to the incinerators. Destruction of the ghettos began late in 1942. The enclave at Warsaw came under fire in April 1943. There, Belgorod Jews, many little more then boys and girls mounted a heroic resistance. Somehow they managed to stave off the Nazis' onslaught for six weeks. On May 10th, 1943, the futile struggle ended. The futile struggle ended. The ghetto and all those inside were annihilated. Before the war began, 3.3 million Jews had made Poland their home. By the end of the war, 3 million had perished. These events cast the cauldron into which little Herrick and his family were thrown. Henrik and his family were thrown. The first rude intrusion into their lives entered when a black-booted representative of a new regime called at the Winchart home one winter afternoon. After a crisp introduction, the man stated his business. On Monday morning, you will bring your three oldest sons to the railroad station in Warsaw. They will be taken to Germany for training, then put to work in an industrial plant. You needn't, you needn't worry about them. They'll be, tr- they'll be well treated. When the war is over, you will see them again. There is no time for discussion or rebuttal. The matter had been settled by the authorities. Arthur Hirsch and Jacob would be taken from their midst to serve as their captors. A pall of apprehension, apprehension hang over the household for the remainder of the week. It was as though the witchers were grasping some precious thing that was slipping irretrievably from their fingers. All seemed to be well. All seemed to be well aware that they had known all their lives was passing from them. Would they ever be together as a family again? It was a question none could answer, and a situation over which none had control. Monday was a dismissal day. The weather was bad. The mood depressing. Arthur made a few feeble attempts to cheer the family spirit. It was a vain effort. The depot was teeming with activity. People were jammed into the terminal, jostling their way to or from the transit, the trains. Dozens of families, many of whom were friends or acquaintances of the wine charts, had come on the same mission. Teenage boys stood bags in hand, ready to be ushered aboard the train for a long ride to Germany. Tema and Henrik clutched their parents' clothing during the tearful farewells. Then the boys boarded the train and were gone. Henrik thought the house seemed larger with his brothers. It was certainly quieter. He and his sister now spent more time playing with one another and the neighborhood children than they had before. After a time, most of the older boys had disappeared from the community and only small ones remained. In the months that followed, Mendel increasingly spent long periods of time locked in silence. When the children spoke to him, the words did not appear to penetrate. It seemed that his thoughts were far away as Hendrik's Hendrik's brothers. When he came in the evenings, he and Ruth would send the children into another part of the house while they talked quietly. It seemed like hours before Tima and Hendrik were allowed into the room. Frequently following these conversations, Ruth were worried, were a worried expression. The children could often see that she had been weeping. One night, the news was unusually bad. Mendel told his wife that the rumors they had heard were now confirmed. 
All Jewish families were to be relocated within a designated area in the city of Warsaw. Official notification of order would arrive soon. But what will become of our home? <clears throat> but what will become of our home? Ruth asked, distraught. It'll be used for housing German soldiers. At least that is what I'm told they plan to do with the most of the dwellings confiscated from Jews. And the children, Mendel, what will become of our children? Her tone carried a pleading burst of concentration that had been building for months. I've been giving much thought to that question, her husband replied softly. Timo must come with us, but I see no future in the ghetto for Henrik. I feel it would be best to do what we can to conceal his identity as a Jew and place him in an orphanage. Ruth was stunned but receptive. I see what has happened to the others. It can't be worse for him in an orphanage. At least we will be in the same city. Perhaps this way he has a chance. So the decision was made. In a few days, Ruth would take the boy to a home for orphans. The day came quickly. Soon, a mother and her son walked hand in hand through the streets of Warsaw. Ruth proceeded hesitantly, a small veil in her left hand. Somehow she wished they could walk past the orphanage into a world free from death and trouble. But it was not to be. Soon, an austere gray building, which stood behind a low stone wall, appeared before them. Ruth quickened the pace as they passed the gate and climbed the steps toward the entrance. Once inside, there was a brief exchange of introductions before the communal papers were filled out. After this was completed, Ruth asked for a few moments to be alone with her son. One hand gripped his arm tightly. The fingers of the other passed repeatedly through his hair. Henrik looked into his mother's face. What he saw there would remain etched in his memory for life. She appeared much older than she had looked just weeks ago. Her eyes possessed a strange frightened expression he had never seen in them before still he thought she was a very beautiful woman still small blonde and rounded face she represented all that a mother could properly personify to a son and when he looked at her he saw all the affection strength and attention a boy could ever desire she spoke in carefully measured tones henrik i want you to make a promise one that you must always carry with you a promise you must never forget do not tell anyone that you are a Jew. But mother, why? Because they don't like Jews here. You must watch your words, be careful what you say, and always remember what I have told you. My son, you must learn to be strong. From now on, you are no longer my child. Now you are a man. He could feel her body quiver as she embraced him. Rising quickly, she paused for a moment to assure him. Remember, be strong. Chazak, chazak, v'nis chazak. I will come often to see you. Then turn away, she left the room. When he could no longer hear her footsteps in the hallway, he walked to the window and looked out. He saw his mother cross the courtyard and pass through the gate. For a time, Henrik spent hours at the window watching for his mother to visit him, or better still, to take him home and put an end to this bad dream. On holidays and weekends, he searched the faces of those who arrived to see relatives, eagerly hoping to find someone who was familiar to him. But it was always the same, a disappointed boy would return to his home to await another day in the hope that it would bring his mother back to him. By this time, however, his parents, along with so many other Jewish families, were enduring the rigors of their trial. Soon things at the orphanage began to change. German teachers arrived to instruct the children in the German language. 
Although with other language studies, the youngsters were carefully exposed to Nazi political indoctrination. Indoct indoctrination. They were after all prime prospects for the Hitler Youth Movement the Nazis were developing in Poland. Before long, the children found themselves journeying heartily in the songs of the fatherland, many of which were packed with anti-Jewish lyrics. Children could often be seen in the courtyard imitating the goose steps, goose step of the soldiers of the Third Reich, and raising stiffened arms in salutes to the Fuhrer. After a full year of concentrated brainwashing, the boys had indeed become very German. Henrik was no exception. He was now conversant in German and harbored the same ambitions and as all the other boys to become a soldier and fight for Dutchland. One day an announcement was made at a special assembly. You'll be happy to know that you are going to take a long journey. Tomorrow morning you will board a train bound for Berlin. For the first time you will see the fatherland. Along the way you will tour the country. Boo. Along the way you will tour the country and get a good look at the land of the Fuhrer. Who knows? You may even see him. Boo. Everyone was ecstatic over the news to rid the train so to ride the train so far. It was the opportunity of a lifetime and to go to Germany. What more could one ask? Henrik was not so sure. This would mean leaving Warsaw. If his mother should come for him, he would be gone. He was disturbed even more when he learned that after their departure, the orphanage would be closed permanently. How could she find him if he went so far away? He didn't sleep much that night. His mother's words kept running through his mind. Be strong. I will come back to see you. There, in the darkness of the room, it seemed as though he could reach out and touch her face. He was almost certain he could feel the grip of her hand on his arm. Surely she would come for him. Finally, sleep enveloped little Henrik and brought quiet to his troubled mind. In the morning, he came to a decision. What will be, will be. German lay ahead of him. He will go there as a man. He would be strong. Several days on the rails provided plenty of mental diversion for the boy traveler. The countryside was beautiful. Deep ravens and their picturesque rambling streams passed frequently beneath the wheels of the train. They journeyed through hamlets and cities where people always seemed to be in a great hurry to get where they were going, and always there were soldiers. Sometimes they stretched out in long columns, marching along the roads. At every railroad station, one could see them walking slowly, with rifles strung over their shoulders. The Germans kept their promise to show these Polish boys the heartland of the Third Reich. The train rumbled through many of the major cities in eastern and southern Germany. Dresden, Dresden, Frankfurt, on the Oder, Stuttgart, and, and Brandenburg all moved slowly past the windows of the train before it swung north toward its final destination. As the train approached the city of Berlin, it slowed and moved on to the sliding, siding near the railroad station. Everybody out, cried one of the men who was accompanying the boys. Take all of your belongings, leave nothing on the train. It was good to be off the train and out in the fresh air again. They waited about 30 minutes before gleaming, a gleaming black car drove up to the station house and stopped. Several uniformed Germans got out and approached the man who was in charge of the children. Move them inside and line them up according to size, one of the officers ordered. The boys were herded into a large room and lined up according to the instructions. An officer stepped forward and addressed the group. Welcome to the fatherland. I bring you greetings in the name of the Fuhrer. 
Boo! Your group will now be divided into two units. Those who are largest and strongest will be placed in a group that will proceed to Berlin. The rest of you will return to Poland. The soldiers then hustled them through a line where the final selection was being made. Henrik found himself standing before an angular officer. Well, young man, what do you want to be when you are grown? The soldier asked. I want to be an officer in the German army and fight for Dutchland, Henrik replied. The German threw back his head and laughed. Such courage in one small... In one so small, he said. But I am not too small to fight. You will see, the boy challenged. The officer smiled down at him. Yes, you will fight, but not now. You are too small. Go back to Poland and drink as much milk as you can. Then you will come back and serve the Reich. Tickets and food rations were issued to those who were not selected to continue. Soon, they were on the train for their return trip to Poland. For the boy, it was a great disappointment. But in terms of survival... Being too small probably saved his life. Henrik did some hard thinking on the journey home. What would he do now? He could not return to the orphanage, but where would he go? More than ever, he wanted to see his family. That was it. If his parents could not come to him, he would go to them. If he would return to War Warsaw and go back to his home. He would return to Warsaw and go back to his home. It took some time to find the old neighborhood. Things had changed as Henrik neared his home. However, the surroundings appeared reassuringly familiar. Finally, the homestead came into view. He began to run excitedly toward the house. At long last, he would be reunited with his parents and Tima. How good was it to be home again? How good it was to be home again. As he turned into the walkway to his house, the front door opened and a woman stepped out. It was not his mother. The woman wore a German uniform. She stood before him on the sidewalk with a frozen expression. What do you want? She snapped. If it's food you are after, you'll find none here. Go away. The stunned 11-year-old spun his heels, spun his heel and walked quickly into the street. Once he was beyond the woman's view, he stopped. Fresh questions now flooded his mind. What he wondered, what he wondered could have happened. Where were his parents? Would he ever see them again? How would he find them? As he struggled with his thoughts, a boy walked toward him. Henrik paid little attention to him at first, but then he realized that the lad was Janus, a neighbor with whom he had spent many hours at play before his days at the orphanage. Henrik's, Henrik called out to him and rushed forward. The boy's face registered instant recognition, but as quickly, his features became rigid with fear. The youth sped up his pace and brushed by without a word. As Henrik turned to pursue him, the boy turned in the house, slammed the door behind him. Henrik's small fist frantically assail assailed the door through which his former playmate had darted. He had to find the answer. Someone must tell him where his parents had gone. At last, the door opened a crack, and Henrik recognized the boy's father. Before he could say a word, the man was speaking. Go away from this place, please. Go quickly. By now, the boy was weeping openly. But why? What has happened? There was a brief silence. Then the door was thrown open and a man stepped out. His eyes were apprehensive as they swept the street. Pushing Henrik aside, he said, All right, I'll tell you where they are, but then you must go. The Germans have forbid us to take Jews into our homes. To do so means death for the whole family. Even to speak to you places me in grave danger. Your family has to be taken to the ghetto. There are no more Jews living in this neighborhood. 
Your family has been taken to the ghetto. There are no more Jews living in this neighborhood. I will tell you a place where they must find them. It is in the Jewish quarter. The wall, the wall outside the hev is heavily guarded. The wall outside is heavily guarded. I don't know if you will be able to get in. Now please leave by the back door. Hurry, tell no one you were here. That is the conclusion of chapter one of Tzvi, the Miraculous Story of Triumph over the Holocaust by Elwood McQuaid.